As we prepare our hearts for the, the Christmas season we're, uh, and celebrating the birth of Jesus, we're beginning a new three-week series this morning entitled The Gift. Uh, the idea from this series I actually got from uh, Life Church Open Network, which is it's a network of large churches where they've got a lot of money and they've got a lot of people on staff and they, they thankfully and graciously give uh, resources to smaller churches like us. And so as I was researching, what, what should we focus on this Christmas season? This is, uh, this is the, uh, the idea that we got and this has come to us from uh, Life Church Open Network, very generously giving us some of their resources. So thankful for that. This, uh, this series is inspired entirely by Matthew 2, verse 11, and the story of the wise men who came to worship Jesus and bring him three gifts around the time of his birth. Now you'll notice that I said around the time of his birth. And I say that because there's a myth that endures regarding the Christmas story that some of you may not be aware of. And I'm going to bust it wide open this morning. And so hopefully you're ready for this if you didn't know this already. The wise men were actually not present at the birth of Jesus. No. Yeah. Yeah. They did not visit him in the manger. Now, if you thought they did, I can understand why you thought that. One of the reasons is that this belief widely continues because of one of the most famous ornaments that a lot of us probably have in our house at this time of year. An ornament that's actually just to my left that I knocked over before service this morning. But uh, how many of you have a nativity scene in your house? Yeah. And how many of those nativity scenes have the wise men visiting the manger? Yeah, exactly. This is why uh, this is why this belief kind of endures that they were there. And I, I don't mean to cause too much angst for anyone this morning um, by pointing out that our nativity scenes are not incre- entirely accurate. Right? Now, if you're if you are uh, a literal person, don't go home and destroy your nativity scene. Okay, it's just a depiction of the entire story of Christmas. Uh, we actually know right from Matthew 2 that the wise men weren't at the manger because in Matthew 2.11 it says when they went to visit Jesus, they, went, they entered the house to worship him, not a stable. And so if that information has shook you this morning, if that's new for you this morning, I don't even want to mention the other uh, myth that kind of endures around Christmas. It's not the fact that we depict that there were only three wise men when really we have no idea. We know that there were three gifts Uh, But we don't actually know how many wise men came. uh, And there's a lot of people who would actually advocate for the fact that there was probably more than three wise men. And so we we just don't know. It's become a a common tradition that follows the Christmas story that there were three of them. And so, as I said, some of you may not have known these things this morning. Some of you may have already known them. And if you didn't know them and you feel like your world has just been rocked, all of a sudden, in the first couple of minutes of the sermon, come see me after and we will process this together. Because I remember I was an adult the first time that I realized, wait, the wise men weren't actually at the nativity scene. And everything that I thought, everything I believed when I was a kid about that was wrong. And, and it kind of shook me. So if that's you this morning, uh, I, I see you and I sympathize with you. And just come and we'll pray together after. Right? We'll, we'll get through this. Some of you may be wondering, well, then when did the wise men 
actually visit Jesus? And the answer is, we don't know for sure. Uh, there, throughout church history, this is one of those things that's been disputed. And we, don't, we do know that by the third century, uh, church leaders had established a day in the Christian calendar, which some of you may have heard of, depending on your tradition and your background, called Epiphany. And the word Epiphany means appearance or manifestation. And the day of Epiphany was set on January 6th, 12 days after Christmas. And it's called Epiphany because it's the day that some believe the wise men actually visited Jesus, which would mean that it represents Jesus's first manifestation or appearance to non-Jews since the wise men were from a foreign nation far to the east, thus the name Epiphany. But regardless, this day is certainly not universally accepted. And so the best we can say is the wise men came to visit Jesus sometime between about two weeks and two years after his birth. We know it was sometime in there because around the age of two, Mary and Joseph had to escape to Egypt in order to get away from King Herod, who was looking to kill Jesus. And as for these wise men... Matthew doesn't give us very much information about them. He doesn't give us any background about them. He simply states that they are from the East. Now, some of your Bibles, they may have notes in them that says the wise men could also be translated as magi. And both of these terms refer to men who were highly educated. And they often served in royal courts in Eastern empires. They were often regarded as valuable advisors in these royal courts because they had knowledge of things like astronomy and science and agriculture and sorcery. But you may be wondering, well, why did these wise men from the East care about this king of the Jews if they weren't Jewish? Because that's what they called Jesus in Matthew 2.2 when they were searching for him. It says, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw the star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And so why and and how would men from a foreign nation even know about this king of the Jews or care about him? Well, historians can help us with that answer. Wise men were known to study sacred writings in their pursuit of wisdom, and historians believed that these wise men came far from the east from a place called the Parthian Empire. Any history buffs out here? Oh man, just me? Oof. All right. Move past it quickly then. Uh, (laughs) But the Parthian Empire existed in the place where the Babylonian Empire used to exist. And we all know that from the Old Testament. The Jews were captured and they were sent into exile in Babylon. And so historians believe that there would have been remnants of Jewish history left in this area, likely the Old Testament writings. And so the wise men would have added these writings to their library and read about this king of the Jews. And when they saw the star, these men understood astronomy and they understood astrology. And so they knew what was going on and came to worship Jesus. Matthew 2.10 says, when the star appeared, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so they journeyed from the east to the home of Mary and Joseph. And they entered the home, they knelt down, they worshiped Jesus, laying before him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why these gifts? Well, they brought gifts, first of all, because it was a custom to bring an offering when visiting royalty. And the gift should reflect the honor that was due to the one receiving them. And so from that perspective, gold and frankincense and myrrh made sense. 
Because they were immensely valuable commodities in the first century. They were considered great treasures. They would have been fitted, they would have been fit for a king. And not only that, they were also quite practical because they had many uses at that time of history. But there's also something more meaningful to these gifts as well. You see, the Bible doesn't explicitly attach further meaning to them. But it is generally accepted that beyond being valuable and practical, gold and frankincense and myrrh also hold deeper theological and spiritual meanings that foreshadow what Jesus represents. And that's what I want us to consider over the next three weeks together. We'll examine the meaning behind each one of these gifts and how each one points to an aspect of who Jesus is, beginning this morning with frankincense. Now, before we get into the meaning of frankincense, I thought I should give some background on what it is, because if you're like me, I have no idea what frankincense is. And so that was part of my research this week was figuring out what frankincense actually was. And so from my research, I learned that frankincense is a resin that is produced by scraping the bark off of a Boswellia tree, which is found in the Middle East and Africa. And the resin is usually made into essential oil. And frankincense oil is known to possess a number of health benefits. It's an antiseptic. It can help with digestion. It can help with blood issues. It can help with inflammation, pain relief. And in modern times, doctors have even found that it may help relieve certain cancers, and improve asthma. So it has a lot of healing properties to it. Additionally, and most importantly for our purposes this morning, frankincense is also known to have a strong and pleasing aroma and is often burned as incense. So why is frankincense so significant spiritually? Well, frankincense had a very significant meaning for the Israelites. Because frankincense was one of the main ingredients used in the incense that the priests would burn as part of their worship to God in the tabernacle and later in the temple that was built by Solomon. Priests would burn incense as a central part of the sacrificial system which was given to Moses by God. But it wasn't just any incense that the priests could burn. God gave them very specific instructions. In Exodus 30, God gave Moses the instructions for creating what was called the altar of incense in the tabernacle. And starting in verse 34, God provided Moses a specific recipe for the incense that would be burned on it. Verse 34, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacked in anica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So the incense containing sweet spices mixed with pure frankincense was the only incense that was allowed to be burned in this manner by the high priest. And it was considered holy. And God warned the people, do not make this same composition for yourselves. It is holy to the Lord. And anyone who does will be cut off 
from the people of God. That's pretty serious. And so knowing the incense burnt at the altar by the priest was made of pure frankincense with sweet spices. And knowing that this was one of the gifts given to Jesus when he was born by the wise men, it is generally concluded that the gift of frankincense, while being valuable, while being practical, was also a foreshadowing of the fact that the one born on Christmas would be our great high priest. The high priest of the new covenant. Frankincense for Jesus, our great high priest. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. So first, some background on the priest's role. The priests in the Old Testament served one very important role, which they performed in two different but related functions. Their primary role was to be the representative of God's people before God. And the priest would do this by performing two different functions. First, the priest made animal sacrifices for the atonement of the people's sins. The sins of the people would be placed upon an innocent animal. And that animal would be sacrificed as a substitute for the people, carrying the punishment that they deserved. The second function of the priest was to be an intercessor for the people. He would pray on their behalf to God for forgiveness of their sins. And so the priest's primary functions were to make sacrifices and to intercede as the one representing the people. The one who stood between the people and God. But why was this role necessary? Why was this needed? It was necessary because of what happened in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of creation. From the moment in the Garden of Eden when Eve decided to eat of the fruit of God that he had commanded them not to eat of, and Adam decided to sit by and let his wife sin, there have been two opposing conditions at play in our world. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. R.C. Sproul says two things that every human being must come to understand are the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Now in our culture, both of those ideas are increasingly maligned. The idea of God has become whatever people fancy him to be in their own minds, not rooted in anything sensible or objective. His holiness and right to rule has been lost in the hearts of people. While the idea of sin is increasingly considered dangerous, is increasingly considered hateful, and it is increasingly considered oppressive. People are not sinners anymore. They simply make mistakes. A holy God and objective sin are outdated ideas in a culture that believes that everything, including morality, is relative. What's true and right and good for you does not mean that that is true and right and good for me. That we have come to this place is in itself proof that sin exists. Sin along with Satan is what leads to such blindness and false conclusions. Just as sin caused Adam and Eve to usurp the commands of God, sin causes human beings to ignore, deflect, and deny the truth of God. R.C. Sproul continues, he says, These topics, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, are difficult for people to face 
If we understand who God is and catch a glimpse of his majesty, his purity, his holiness, then we become instantly aware of the extent of our own corruption. The underlying reason why we have come to this sort of relative morality in our culture is because people have lost their understanding of the holiness of God. Sin has blinded people to who God is and corrupted our hearts so that we do not see just how sinful we are. And as long as a lack of understanding of God's holiness remains, a casual and dismissive approach to sin will remain. Because until we realize what it truly means that God is holy, we will never realize the cost of what sin does to us. So what does it mean that God is holy? Well, the word holy comes from the Greek word agios, which means to be separate, to be other, to be set apart. God's holiness means that he is completely separate from us and all of creation. God's holiness means that that, that we must understand God's holiness is, is not one attribute of who he is. It is not just one attribute, the way that we say that he is loving and he is gracious and he is merciful and so on, but rather God's holiness is the perfection of all of his attributes together. It is the wholeness of who he is. All of his attributes together is what makes him separate and set apart and holy and worthy of our praise. The way that he loves and the way that he shows grace and his mercy and his purity and his power and his authority and his eternality and so on. Every attribute that we can give to God is what makes him set apart and holy. It is the wholeness of who he is. And we had perfect communion and fellowship with this holy God before the fall. But the problem is when Adam and Eve rebelled against him, that fellowship was broken. The curse of sin entered creation. Death became a reality. And because of what happened in the garden, we are all infected by sin and separated from God. Scripture tells us every single one of us have fallen short of God's glory. God's holiness. It doesn't matter if you're a nice person. It doesn't matter if you're a charitable person. It doesn't matter if you're a caring person. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's standard. And our sin breaks relationship with him because he is holy. Sin is everything that God is not. And we have destroyed our fellowship with him because of it. It has separated us from him. It destroys our lives and it has eternal consequences. These are the two opposing conditions in our world since the fall in the garden. The holiness of God. And the sinfulness of man. Our condition needs to be dealt with. So that what was lost at the fall can be reclaimed. And we can return to fellowship with God now and forever. And so in his love, God made a plan. He gave his people a sacrificial system. And priests that would perform sacrifices and intercede for his people. Representing them to God. 
This system was put in place for the covering of sin and the restoration of sinful people to right relationship with God. As part of the sacrificial system, there would be one day a year known as the Day of Atonement, which you may know better as Yom Kippur. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sacrifice an innocent animal as a temporary atonement or payment for the sins of the people. The high priest would be permitted on this day to enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, where he would light the incense containing the frankincense and other spices. And the smoke from the incense would rise to heaven, representing the cries for mercy from the people of God. And while the incense burned, the priest would take the blood of the animal that was sacrificed as reparation for the people's sins and sprinkle the blood of the animal on the mercy seat. Because it was only through the offering of blood that condemnation of sin and the breaking of God's law could be removed. An innocent animal killed in the place of the people who were guilty in order to cleanse them of their sin. Then, how many of you know the term scapegoat? I've heard it before. Well, scapegoat came from the Jewish sacrificial system. Scapegoat means one that is made to bear the blame of others. After sacrificing the animal and lighting the incense, the high priest would take a goat and he would put his hands on it and confess the sins of the people over the head of the goat, symbolically transferring the sins of the people to the goat. And then the priest would release the goat into the wilderness, away from the camp of the people, to symbolize the removal of sin and the removal of guilt from the people. It was in these acts, performed by the high priest, that God's requirement for justice and God's requirement for punishment of sin was satisfied. And through this justification, God extended mercy to his people without forsaking his justice and his holiness. But a problem remained. And that problem was that the atonement was temporary. It had to be repeated over and over and over again to make God's people right with him. And you know where I'm going with this. Praise to God that his plan didn't end with temporary atonement. Because that which was temporary under the old covenant would give way to a greater new covenant as God's redemptive plan for all humanity played out and mercy extended beyond the Israelite people to the Jew and the Gentile alike to as many whom shall come and receive the mercy that God offers. He always declared that that would happen. The prophets spoke of it. And under the new covenant, there would be a better and lasting sacrifice for people. And that new and better sacrifice came in the form of God's son, Jesus Christ, the new and greater and eternal high priest who was born in the manger who like the priests of the Old Testament would make a sacrifice for our sins. But unlike the Old Testament priests, it would be a sacrifice that would not need to be repeated. 
He would make a better and lasting sacrifice as high priest by offering not an animal, but his own life, shedding his innocent, sinless blood as a now and forever covering for our sins, satisfying the justness of God once for all and extending mercy to all those who will hear this good news and believe this truth and say, yes, I'm a sinner who cannot stand before a holy God, but need to be forgiven and shown mercy. And out of that belief, we'll repent. We'll turn from sin. We'll turn from old ways. We'll go from trusting in self. We'll go from thinking I'm a good person to knowing I'm not, but there's mercy. Confessing their sins to the Lord. Recognizing I need Jesus. The high priest who covered, who offered his life in the place of mine to take my punishment that I may receive mercy and be covered by his righteousness so that I may once again stand before this holy God in right relationship with him. Hebrews 10 speaks about our high priest. Look what it says, starting in verse 9. Behold, I have come to do your will. That's Jesus speaking. He does away with the first, the old covenant, in order to establish the second, the new covenant. And by that, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, meaning all the priests before Jesus, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was finished. It was done. It was taken care of. Waiting for that time until his enemies would be put and made a footstool for his feet. By a single offering, him on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus Christ, our high priest, died once for all who would believe in him, who would repent of their sins, who would trust in him, receive his righteousness, be covered with it, so that when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are hidden with Christ, as Paul says. You know what's so amazing about Jesus as our high priest? It's this, it's that because he came, As a babe in a manger, he's not far from us. He's not removed from us. He's intimately acquainted with us. He came so that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. So that he could be merciful and faithful to us. Hebrews 4, verse 14 and 15. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are without sin. You know what Christmas time reminds us of? It reminds us of Jesus' humanity. We need to be reminded of his humanity, especially when life becomes particularly difficult. Because Jesus faced all the same temptations that we faced, since he too was a man. 
Whatever you are going through, He understands and He is able to sympathize with your weakness because He felt that weakness as a man. It is because of this that we can come to Him, that we can seek Him, that we can pray to Him, Lord, You know what I'm feeling. And you're the one that conquered. If you're stressed, if you're overwhelmed, if you're anxious, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweated blood, overwhelmed by what was facing him and the fact that all of his friends abandoned him. He knows what you're feeling. Have you ever been criticized? Ridiculed? Bullied? Jesus knows what you're feeling. You've most definitely been tempted to sin by the devil. Jesus was tempted by the devil when he was at his weakness, weakest, yet he did not sin. But he knows. Have you experienced death and loss? He experienced death and loss. As John the Baptist was beheaded, He experienced anger. He was accused of things that were not true. He experienced physical and emotional pain. Whatever you feel, he felt. Whatever you face, he faced. And he sympathizes with you. That's our high priest. From that place of sympathy that flows into compassion... He performs the second function of a priest, just like those in the Old Testament. He intercedes for his people. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. How sweet that we have a high priest who intercedes Daily, hourly, moment by moment for us as the one who understands what we're facing. And so, if you're here and you do not know Christ, pray that you would hear this truth this morning about this great high priest who died for you. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every single one of us who knows Jesus knows that's what we need. We need to draw near with confidence, not sheepishly, with confidence. We draw near knowing that grace is waiting and we receive mercy in those times of need. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus or you have a nominal relationship with Christ. 
He bids the same for you. Come. Draw with confidence. When you know that you're a sinner in need of Jesus, draw with confidence to the throne of grace and mercy will be received. You won't be turned aside. You won't be turned away. He will shower you with mercy. And so maybe you're here and you recognize that what I'm saying is true. That there is a God and he is holy. And in contrast to him, you are a sinner. You can look at your life and you recognize you're not a mistaker. It goes deeper than that. You're a sinner. It pervades every part of you. And you recognize that you are in need of mercy. You need to be forgiven. Well, Jesus died for that very reason. So God could extend mercy to you because the payment for your sin has been made on the cross when you trust in Jesus. All you need to do is recognize you are a sinner in need of salvation and repent and say, God, I am sorry for my sins. I need to be made right with you and I cannot do it on my own. And mean it. And trust That the Lord Jesus that died for you, that his sacrifice of his life covers you so that you may be reconciled to God now and forever. Draw with confidence to the throne of grace and receive the mercy that is available in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are discouraged in here this morning, who are downcast, who are burdened and heavy laden, maybe due to circumstances of life, maybe due to their own sin. Father, I ask now that you would speak life to their heart, that you would speak words of encouragement to them that they would know in this moment that mercy and grace is available to them. Father, they can come to the mercy seat and lay down their burdens and receive freedom in Christ. Father, I pray for those in here who have not given their lives to you. Father, I ask that you would reveal the truth of who Jesus is to them in their heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, that they would understand that they are sinners in need of grace. That all of us have fallen short. Father, help them to recognize that restlessness that is in their heart the peace that is needed through Jesus Christ, that they may come to you and receive peace, the mercy and the forgiveness that is needed for those things that they've done in the past, for those sins that they've struggled with. God, remind them that you are not a faraway God, that you are are not an angry God, that you have made a way for them to come to you, that you invite us in as sinful people 
And you say, come and receive mercy through my son. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts, invite them in, Father, and that they would respond and say, yes, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. Thank you, Father, for Christmas. Thank you for this time of year when, when we celebrate the coming of our King, our High Priest, who sacrificed for us and intercedes for us. May all the glory be to your name, Lord, in Jesus' name.